Hi, dear listeners. Alfie Faber here once again. If it's your first time listening, welcome to Sam Perspective. Uh, I interview the people in film who combine sight and sound. Uh, editors, directors, composers, sound designers, all the good, fun stuff. Above all, I just love chatting to people about movies. Um, and today we're chatting to some great ones. We're talking to Frank Cruz and Lars Ginzel, sound supervisor and re-recording mixer of the new Netflix war film, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, it's a very gripping and visceral depiction of trench warfare uh, during the First World War based on the 1928 novel of the same name. Uh, Lars and Frank did some truly phenomenal sound design on this, for which they recently won the BAFTA for Best Sound Design. Congrats to them both. Uh, they've also been nominated for an Oscar for their sound design, uh, which will be happening in about a week. So that's exciting to see who will be winning that. Um, so Frank joined me from LA where he's just hanging out before the Oscars and Lars was, I believe in Denmark or Germany. So it was all three of us online, uh, on the zoom call. Um, at one point we did have a technical issue with, uh, Lars's connection. So you'll hear his quality drop for just a moment, but what won't drop is the quality of his interesting conversational tidbits, which was very exciting to listen to. But enough from me, let's hear from these genius sound dudes. Uh, Frank Cruz and Lars Ginzel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, yes. So did you guys, uh, I don't know much about your histories um or your careers other than like looking at the imdb and whatnot which is uh really impressive and there's some other films other than all quiet on the western front which um i'd love to chat to you about if we have time we'll see but um how did you guys get into sound design in this world yeah it, it's it's probably similar to a lot of people uh, in, in this field i I, as a teenager, I started playing in bands and making music and stuff. And uh, I played the drums. And um, yeah, I was always at the same time interested in the process of recording that music and the technology behind it, you know, playing around with uh, uh, synthesizers and, you know, being fascinated as a kid uh, after watching on TV, actually, I believe there was a show kind of uh, featuring a Foley artist and uh, what they do for a cartoon show. And I found that so fascinating. So that kind of pushed me a little bit in that direction. But um, I was really more focused on music. And then after school, I moved uh, to Berlin out of my parents' house. And uh, there was pretty early on because my my I had my father's originally from Berlin. So uh, I kind of have Berlin roots. And then a year after I moved to Berlin, the, the Berlin Wall came down. Oh. And there was a huge demand for uh, ENG uh, assistants, like camera assistants who, oh. uh, you know, are part of the two-man crew of news gathering, like, right. you know, carrying the tripod and booming with a cameraman uh, on press conferences and stuff. 
And that became like a, an easy and fairly convenient way of making a decent amount of money as a student. Uh, right. Berlin was super cheap back then. So <laughs> you, you could live on maybe two or three jobs a month and otherwise, you know, do whatever you want. So it was a great, uh, provided a great amount of freedom and kind of, <clears throat> and uh, at the same time, I learned a lot about booming and, and mounting you know, radio mics on people and, you know, don't uh, not mess up stuff on the first uh, attempt uh, because it's, uh, you know, it was news. So and then later on, I, I uh, found out about the film school in Potsdam Babelsberg, which is a, a very old kind of film school with a, with a long history. And uh, and they had a, a, a sound class uh, there and and applied for that school and uh, got accepted after taking the audition and the test and uh yeah the kind of the the rest is history so to speak um that's a it's a longer story cut very short but that's a that's about how how that happened that's a cool background though working in doco that would have been some pretty interesting reporting back then yeah, yeah. and then even that school is structured in a way that you you work on, you kind of, you work with the, the other departments at the school. So there are camera people, directors, etc. So they integrate them, uh, integrate the sound students into their first like short film projects. And it's just, you're thrown into the water at the same time taking all the classes. So it, it's pretty hands-on. So really learning uh, a lot, uh, uh, starting out on a Steinbeck with a Nagra tape recorder, which was a, even though there was already digital, uh, 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 you know, technology around, they, we were forced to start out on a Steinbeck and record our sounds on a Nagra. And that was such a great kind of a learning curve because you know, nowadays, sometimes when I when I do workshops with uh, young uh, aspiring sound people, I literally get asked why 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 there's a clapperboard uh, being uh, hit on set because and then once you you've undergone uh, undergone the process of syncing up you know analog tape to analog film, uh, it becomes all so so real and materialistic. Uh, there's no more questions after that, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not implying that film students don't know why the slate is, is actually hit on slet, on set, but <laughs> it's, you know, we're in, in times where the sound is recorded, recorded on the camera, more or less, uh, uh, in, in, uh, let's say, <clears throat> you know, in everyday life, it, it can become a weird, like, almost like a ritual from, from a hundred years ago. Yeah, relic. So. Yeah, that's fun. Um, yeah, Lars, what about you? What's your history? Yeah, I'll also try to keep it brief because there's a couple of parallels to Frank's actually. Um, also, ba my basic background is in, in music, but rather um, doing doing the little I could, um, trying to play guitars or bass in some punk bands and um then at some point um still on school i uh i actually bought a eight track uh tape recorder uh to record my own band and other bands so that's when when the whole recording thing started for me and so i started recording other bands and um thought about career in, in music engineering and 
actually the um we uh, i also went to the film school in barbelsberg as as frank just a couple of years after him so um the but the reason why i found that was that i um like any of the official traditional music engineering um degrees in germany would require you to to um to really know how to play the piano uh, in order to oh, apply right. and i've never learned that so even um, just for music was, recording well i you know it's like the the official university degrees that would require that um um there's private schools that have less uh yeah where it's easier to get in but um right yeah for those that was like uh, mandatory and i i never really learned the piano so i i looked around and i found this also the the sound class in on at the film school and like they also wanted a little bit of piano but a lot less so and i still had time so i could learn two years of piano um and uh i also needed to to have like a um like an internship in some kind of um studio environment and it happened at that at the time um the brother of the bass player of my band he was working in a post-production house in Dortmund, which is close to where I grew up uh, in Western Germany. And um, so he got me into that. And and just out of pure luck and chance, I got into what was, I think at the time, the best post house in Germany because they um, had built, a. it was the still the transition age of, um, of analog to digital in in a film post and the whole studio had already been built around a digital infrastructure so every everything was based on avid's audio vision um daw um and so i got into that and um and i had no clue i honestly like how much work is being done in film sound i had i i like i loved films all the time but I hadn't made that made that connection of like film and sound that there's work to be done and there's creative work to be done. So the first day I was I was sitting there um, uh, and and I think the first day I was just sitting in the mix and um, uh, the deliveries were being played out and I, it was just such a revelation of like oh what is happening here. And I realized like, okay, film has like two major advantages to, to pop and rock music. First, it's longer than three minutes. And second, it uses dynamics. Uh, and and a, even a third, uh, third advantage, which was like, uh, it's all about story. Yeah. And that yeah. just completely hooked me. And so I, I, I was, I was hooked on, on film sound from, from day one or day two of that internship. And then also, yeah, got into the film school and all of that. It's interesting. I, I, I always like asking sound people this because it's interesting how many people come from music and how much of a transferable skill that is. And I look forward to chatting about the music in this one. But uh, in terms of All Quiet on the Western Front, um, I know that a lot of uh, sound teams really relish the opportunity to uh get started on a film like before production or at least during production be involved the whole way through were you guys brought in early did you get that opportunity 
Yeah, I guess I was first on this uh, film, the first uh, person Edward Berger approached, the director. I've known him for me for many many years, um, <clears throat> like on a more like a, on a more like private basis. My wife produced his debut film oh, when he cool. came out of film school, I believe. So cool. th there was that small connection, and I've always, you know. Uh, We never really worked together up to this point. Mm -hmm. uh, he asked me once before for a film, but it didn't work out in terms of uh, schedule. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to work with him. So I was super happy when he uh, gave me the call and told me about uh, this script that he's working on with, uh, with other writers. And when he mentioned the title, I remember like he hadn't, he hadn't even completed the The sentence, and I already knew I I really wanted to do it because of uh, you know All Quiet on the Western Front is such an iconic and well known uh, you know amazing book that everyone yeah. knows from from their school times, <clears throat> and uh, everyone remembers reading that. So I, I immediately knew even. You know, thinking to myself, I I was would really love to do it even before uh, he sent me the script. And then, yeah, so he sent me the script. And this was probably, I don't know, maybe nine, ten months before they started shooting. And, um, and the script was going through another bunch of iterations. But I already kind of made a list of all the sounds that, that would be crucial to capture on set because this was uh covid was ramping up like crazy and by the time they started shooting it was at the at a super high maximum especially in the czech republic where they where the, uh the shoot was going to happen so right. Right. <clears throat> i knew that there wouldn't be uh even the slightest chance to you know travel there and grab a bunch of the unique vehicles and and other stuff that they they built on set, uh, which I really love to do beforehand on many films, especially the yeah. his historical ones, yeah. is, uh, you know, focus on vehicles. And in this case, uh, tons of crowd, because I knew there they would, they would be, you know, lots of extras and crowd and, and kind of more or less uh, doing the real thing on set because all the trenches that they built, it's everything... Pretty much everything you see in in the final product at the moment, uh, like as the film is now, uh, a lot of that was done in camera. So there 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 are a bunch of VFX uh, that are also amazing, like in terms of additional stuff in the background and also additional tanks and stuff. But um, uh, it was really shot in a it was a, a single camera shoot uh, conceptually with a lot of. Uh, prop effects and everything done on screen. So I mm. knew that there would be a great chance to grab all this stuff on set because in other films, you know, sometimes you have a historical film, you see a marble floor, but it will be, you know, cardboard or wood or whatever. So it yeah. wouldn't make sense to record that yeah. even on set. Actually, you, you get rid of all that and reconstruct it all after that. So this was a great chance to work with this film almost like uh, on a documentary where you know you try to save the precious uh, beautiful grit and dirt and and emotion uh, from from the locations so that was a kind of a big thing to to save and preserve from the shoot and so i made a big list uh, coming back to to your 
question about what to capture and had a chat with uh, Victor Prashil, our production sound mixer. And uh, yeah, I found that he did exactly the same thing. So he, he, he was very kind of looking at, uh, at the upcoming work from that perspective as well, which was, which was great. And, and which was kind of the first sign of the, the, the outstanding collaboration we all had on this film, which started exactly with that process, you know, and he more or less made the same, you know, flagged the same items from the script that, that I flagged. And there were a bunch of concerns like the, the, the boots they used on set, they had <clears throat> the real boots had like uh, huge, like metal spikes on the soles. So we knew that those, that, that could be a cause of trouble for the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Part. So he started talking to the costume department and had like 200 pairs of, of boots resold, I believe, if I remember Whoa. correctly, with, wow. rub with rubber yeah, to, wow. to avoid the noise for the, for the uh, interior yeah. scenes and, Great and stuff like that. So there were, yeah, there was a lot of prep went into that and he brought in, you know, he anticipated all the effects and stuff and brought and made sure there was extra helping hands on set to, to to grab extra sounds whenever there was time. Um, you know, they recorded the tanks and the crowd and, but ultimately the key to that actually happening was, was Edward, uh, the director really. And, and he's really uh, a huge fan of recording wild tracks on set, which was, oh great, you know, yeah. on every film. You have to have the director on board for that. So, and this was really the key, uh, a key, another key, kind of step uh, towards the sound of this film, and uh, opened so many options and doors for Victor on set because, basically, he became more or less a, a, a part of the sound team because. You know, you need the director when you asked a team of a couple of hundred people to wait on sound to record, you know, another take of crowd running through the mud and screaming yeah. and, and dying for just yeah. the sound. So, yeah, yeah that was really a, a really exceptional and really unusual uh, option we had there. Mm. And that's, uh, yeah, that's how it came together, really. Yeah, cool. For the shoot. And Lars, I imagine you, as just the re-recording mixer, you would have come on a lot later, but did you get much uh, prep time or uh, time talking with the other team? Um, I mean, Frank and I and, and Marcus, uh, we know each other quite well, but yeah, I, I, came, I think I came on board uh, the last, so um, it was... Um, I I think I I had more the role of the the outside observer um coming and uh stepping onto the train that's already been going for a while and just seeing like okay what have you done here and um uh it's all pretty nice and um but you know we could still do these little touches here and that and and maybe get a little bit more out of that but sure. um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So in in that respect, I I, I never read the script. Um, so the, my starting point was actually the the final cut to to watch it, and um, I think it was already a version where where there was some uh, some kind of temp sound design on it, and um, and Volker score was on it. Uh, so or most of it. Um, so it was in a in a relatively 
um, elaborate state already when I got on board. We have worked together. Like this team has done a lot of films uh, together before. We've we we had done Suspiria with Lars before, yeah. and I've yeah. I've worked with Markus uh, Stemmler for 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 many many years on lots of films. So uh, since the I knew that the schedule would be really really tight with a, just a ton of of elements to create in in a very short amount of time. So. I was really glad that that kind of my go-to team was really available for this in this time segment because I just know, or everyone on this team knows how how the other you know team members work, and we've worked together before. So it was really a kind of a um, yeah, there was a level of trust and 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 how do you say that in English, uh, trust and, and kind of everyone knew how the other people on the team worked. So it was uh, kind of minimizing friction and, and uh, let's say, unpredictabilities. Is that even a word? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to start with the first scene of the film, which I found incredibly effective and I thought spoke to what the rest of the film would be like in which the, uh, the film is kind of established in quiet scenes in the forest from the perspective of like a fox and um, the silence of the forest. And w I'm wondering what the conversations with uh, the director were like around how you'd start the film and why you'd start like that. Yeah, it was actually the the first sequence that um, we tackled before the actual um, main editor sound editorial uh, schedule started. Uh, we did a layout for that sequence. Let's say the the the, the opening, the first battle scene, and the montage uh, where they recycle the uniforms. Mm. That was kind of a, mm. a, a kind of a key uh, sequence because it it it. We wanted to uh, talk to Edward and we wanted to, uh, let's say, find the sonic language for, for the battle scenes and the contrast, mm. etc. pretty yeah. early on before before the starter pistol would be fired uh, a couple of weeks later. And then, you know, there was very little time to go back and reiterate or, you know, discard stuff and, and start from scratch. So we wanted to set the tone there uh, early on. And um, Edward is an interesting director because he, he gives uh, um, a, a huge amount of freedom to, to his team. And I, I think I can speak for all departments in this regard. Like he gives very uh, brief and very open, but uh, at the same time, very specific directions. For mm -hmm. example, like the... <clears throat> The, the bunker collapse sequence, um, uh, he just said, you know, think about Das Boot, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. famous uh, 1980s uh, submarine war film. And uh, he just, that, that was pretty much the only briefing like uh, or inspiration that he gave. And in, in retrospect, I always thought it was a very clever, it's a very clever way of, of inspiring your team because... Um, he knew everyone had seen that t uh, that film, and everyone probably has has its own memory of that sequence. So, 
And then everyone goes back to their stations and creates stuff kind of inspired by looking at that iconic uh, um, uh, scene from the past. And then uh, just instead of, you know, being almost uber specific, like I want, I need this type of wooden creeks. I need something here. I need this there. Uh, and then everyone goes, uh, it goes to work and creates exactly that thinking, you, you know, we have to satisfy, satisfy the director and give him exactly what he requested. Mm. Um, which is, which is one way to do it, but in a way it's also limiting because, um, you know, everyone probably does just that and brings that to the table. So, and by, by being very brief and, and very open in his uh, directions, uh, you know, everyone is just tries out or, or it encourages the team to experiment a lot and bring, you know, look, uh, you know, um, out, think outside the box and bring more to the table than he actually asked for because it's just so open and in a weird way, unspecific, but very specific at the same time. Mm. So coming back to your question, so this sequence was uh, the first time, uh, the first one we tackled, and uh, I thought from the beginning, since the f the film is is told from Paul Boimer's the main character's perspective, we needed to find a way to shift in and out of his perspective from, uh, you know, finding a, a sonic first person uh, storytelling uh, uh, perspective and being able to be able to shift uh, to to the standpoint of an observer almost like in a, a documentary film since the film doesn't really have a a true first person perspective other than i think his a couple of seconds when we're actually under his gas mask in the rain scene yeah uh, yeah that was probably the memorable. only one yeah. that Yeah, it's probably the only the only shot really that is hundred uh, percent first person perspective. So all the other ones is basically the camera observing him running next to him, etc. Mm. And since the the visual concept was um, very helpful in that regard because they they didn't shoot with multiple cameras, so quite often you don't have a lot of coverage. You know, there's there's they 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 simply didn't shoot a lot of you know. Uh, a shot and a reverse shot so yeah. they're yeah. in sometimes in a traditional battle sequence you, you would end up with millions of of uh camera setups and uh, with a high uh frequency of editing and this isn't the case in this film which makes it uh, which is pretty unique i i guess uh, so it also adds to the more or less uh, documentary feel and uh Yeah, so, and, and we talked to Edward about, um, you know, the overall sound and he, he asked us to establish a, um, a, a metaphorical approach also on, on the sound level. So he, he talked a lot about the, the, the war machine, like the industrial machinery yeah. of this industrialized war, the first one probably in history. And he wanted to have a, like a... Um, an undercurrent of, of, of this machinery pounding away in, in, in the home countries, you know, producing weaponry, uh, steel mills and stuff like that. So that became an idea that we established in the, in the, in the uniform montage where you have like this pounding, throbbing, 
uh, metallic rhythm that comes in, which almost feels like a beat uh, um, that is actually in the music, but it's actually sound effects. So I did a, um, a layout for that and, and the transition into the sewing machines, etc. And um, yeah, that was um, a first layout. And then later Volker Bertelmann, the composer, came on. He did another uh, uh, version of that and uh, he saw you know, that, that there were a lot of rhythmic elements already in the in, in that sequence. And then he made a layout, sent that to me, and then we tuned the the rhythm of the, the, the war machine sound that was running under that scene. And then always trying to find a way to to create like a soundtrack that's, that's more a symbio symbiosis between sound effects and music rather than you know, having a battle between them or like uh, either or. I mean, we have some sequences where there's no music and other sequences where there's no effects and other sequences where there's both and you think um, or uh, you think, you know, you're not sure whether you heard music or it was more effects and stuff like that. So that was the the idea to never try and and, you know, do the same thing at the same time in, in in all like sound departments, including music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did that I, answer the question? I'm oh, not sure. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you answered like many things that I was gonna ask, many things I was gonna bring up. Like, um, because you're right, it's not it's not just that first sequence in the forest that's really distinctive. It's the from the forest to the clothes recycling scene where you're like, I get what this film is going to be about. But Lars, what was your um, approach to mixing that first sequence? I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the opening of the film. So it, uh, you, you set a bar for the audience. So, um, and, and we knew that dynamics is a, is a key for, for making the film work for an audience and making, um, keeping keeping it bearable uh like all the the um the battle sequences trying to find the right dynamics the right levels um to keeping it um bearable for an audience even though we did try to um portray portray the unbearable soundscape that uh soldiers had been in most likely in uh in that war um so um one of the great opportunities is that the film starts from from a very low uh uh ambience like of of the forest and then moving it up to the foxes and um and then at the end bef just before the main title we sort of top in terms of of level already um sort of setting the bar like okay if you mm. uh if you're up yeah. for this then you can stay if you're not up for that then think think twice now it's <laughs> sort of like a dis yeah. dis disclaimer thingy yeah. um but it's it, um it was definitely never meant to or or the the quest was really to find the right level that it would feel just overwhelming or if it if it was continuing for another second people would be would say it, this is too much but just have it stop right before that moment of like <gasps> just 
people running running out of the theater because it's too loud yeah. and too much. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, what mm. I remember a lot from from that whole sequence actually is that it's um, like like Frank said, like Edward's um, style of directing is is um, is yeah very unique but also um really great like in in the way he, he's talking to um to his crew um but it's also that that sequence has one of the examples where he was actually very very specific uh, about like how he wanted the transition from the forest to the battlefield to be and i think we mixed like five or six versions of that and like mm. with every every time we came back to it he oh, right. said like, yeah wow. i think we uh, you know it's uh, can we try one other thing i had another thought about this it doesn't so uh, somehow it there was something yeah, it, yeah. that was Just he had a very it. very very clear idea of how it should sound on th just this passage and it, it we had to nail that very specific idea um and that took a little longer and with other uh things i think it was um it was somehow easier or um it worked better but like just saying that even though he sometimes just gives you these very broad descriptions um he can be very very precise about stuff that he's he wants to nail just 100 percent um so that was um uh, also in that sequence yeah i mean i i, I gotta say like the the whole foley team did it did a tremendous job of and and they recorded like tons and tons of material um uh for this film which is also the reason why um we got uh stefan quarter on board to to premix the the foley's because i was still busy finishing the dialogues which took longer and then it really saved us to um uh to finish on on time with everything and um just go through all that um tremendous amount of foley material and and to have it prepared in a way that it's it's easily uh blending with the rest of uh, of the elements um but i think the one of the the key things for the mix was definitely to try and stay focused and um uh on on paul so um the, the in in those de uh battle sequences the the two elements that would always help doing that is either the breathing or just his his mm -hmm. movements his footsteps or whatever he's doing so ha having yeah. having these two sort of guidelines um to to play with was absolutely key to really with sound try to push the focus on on paul and keep it throughout even the loudest parts of of those battle sequences victor was of great help here because he he had this brilliant idea of mounting uh two and up to three microphones on 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 the main characters during the oh, shoot wow. so right he has a there was a um a radio mic mounted in the helmets they were wearing and a body mic and then a third mic i'm not sure where he placed it it was probably varying at times depending on what the next shot would be and they right. were gain staged a lot differently. So some of the mics were gained way up, like for the, I think it was the, the one in the helmet to, because the idea was to capture the, the breaths. Uh, Edward is a great fan of 
uh, you know, keeping the perspective focused on on uh, the the protagonist on screen mm. by maintaining his. You know, you you hear like in these shots, what you hear in these sequences, even in the in the big tank attack battle, is I would say in a high high ninety percent is production sound. And, really, uh, in the tank, yeah, and. Because that was yes. going to be like something I, I asked about next is that tank scene because um, uh, yeah. I think not the tanks themselves, not oh, the tanks right. themselves. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the 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 dialogue, the screaming, the yeah, breathing. Yeah, right. So right. all the the exhaustion, you know, when when Paul falls into the crater and you have these uh, um, exhales and and the kind of the the original energy in his voice from running and kind of impacting onto the ground that's all production sound and wow uh, yeah. so we were able to salvage all of that from from the original tracks which was a huge help to to create this uh sense of you know that you're with him in in that moment and almost like a, in a documentary film and um, a, a lot of the uh, going back to the to the opening sequence with Heinrich, um, the guy who, who who who's in that in that first sequence, um, we used a lot of because of the gain staging of those mics, like all the props explosions that that were on set, like all the on camera stuff, like the you know the dust explosions around the protagonist. They overloaded these mics in a really unique way and in an interesting way that. Oh, sounded really clipping. cool and yeah. and and big because of the the in a way the um, you know the not very elegant way they distort or overload so we chopped those out of the dialogue tracks moved them to the effects and then uh treated them further made them bigger and added other uh designed elements to them but they became the base layer for for the sound work there. So there's a lot of uh, stuff that we salvaged from the original tracks and used the uh, the wild tracks that I mentioned before. So a lot of the running yeah. and, and the muddy feet and uh, body falls and any, everything uh, that was in there is a lot is coming from the, the wild tracks and the production sound. And then we added a layer with Foley uh, that were more like, uh, I, I would say larger than life, but there's this base layer of of this documentary style grid and and grit and and realness uh, that's in there that was really really helpful to to put this together you know because mm. traditionally on a film like this you would probably throw everything away do a full pass of ADR do all the breathing in ADR then add the foley back in and reconstruct the whole scene from scratch more or less and uh and clean the dialogue up as 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 much as possible on this film we really try to find the imperfections and uh try to make them work in our favor and use that as a yeah as a as a conceptual element like to keep it like uh, real and close and because i I really think that in these battle scenes, the the sense you get of of the the main character's exhaustion and emotional state is really from from uh, from the sound of of that that was in the production sound there in the original performance. So that was a really really important thing to to have. And this again boils down to the prep work, you know, talking to Victor and uh, um, having another 
you know, brilliant mind on, on the team that came up with this idea of mounting all these mics on them, which was a huge effort for them because the conditions on set were just brutal. You know, it's pretty yeah. much what you... They shot it yeah. in the same season that you basically see on screen. So oh, it would have been freezing, went, yeah. Yeah, it's freezing wet. It was they were literally in the, in the trenches like the soldiers that you see on screen. So it was good grief. It was it was pretty tough for them. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I mean that's just a lot of extra effort mounting, uh, doing several labs for multiple characters. That's yes. like double the work and. I think it shows a real dedication to craft and getting it right. No, and and it's also like a, like an extra uh, uh, extra workload for um, for the dialogue editorial department. I mean, because they need to go through all of these. But in the end, I think you know it's it was worth it because there's so much gold that was in there, and uh, what one one sort of um, sound that I remember. Um, and I, I found so iconic in, in these um, sequences where, where there's a lot of um, soldiers running was um, some um, some wild track from, from production as well where they had all the um, uh, all the extras in costumes in full costumes run along the battlefield and one of the sounds that sort of stuck out and that I, th I don't think you, you'd do that, uh, recreate that intentionally um, uh, when when you don't have that kind of sound as a, as a foundation was um, the canteens of the soldiers dangling on their on their sides, and so, so you would always hear that. And even though like the Foley crew had like access to the the full uniform with canteen and everything, I mean they can't have like three hundred people running and and do the, that kind of thing in, in foley so um yeah so that was that was another element you got on set is like the sound is sound from extras as well yeah they had literally they had like 50 or 100 extras uh uh do another pass of running across the the battlefield just for sound they had a ton of microphones set up even surround mics etc um so I've never I've never seen so many wild tracks uh, uh, brought home from a shoot. To be honest, I think we ended up uh, Marcus at some point counted them. We had like three hundred fifty or four hundred wild tracks from from the shoot to to work with. Usually, you know, normally on a film like this where everything you know where there are hundreds of people on set and the super tight schedule, you probably have like I don't know ten. Uh, and then you know five of those are room tones that you probably don't need and and but never affects or crowd or or whatnot or you have an ex maybe one extra microphone that was set up for the you know during the actual take but never dedicated recordings with close up booms and all the labs going at the same time so there was really uh, um, a lot of work kind of creating this library from all this uh from all the from all the gold that came from set really and then base the design uh, on that and yeah it was really also during the prep work like you know i also dug into archives and stuff to find like actual recordings of that time to to see if there was any uh, like first-hand actual recordings, but I mean, this was the time of the wax cylinder, and even the 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 one recording I found that was allegedly 
real. Later on, I found an article um, of a researcher saying that it was actually fake, that it might have been created in a in a in a uh, sound stage. You would you would describe you would hear like gas can canisters flying away with a certain distinct uh, uh, whistly sound, but it's obviously super uh, lo-fi. And uh, yeah, that, so there was nothing to um, really uh, use there as inspiration. It was good to having done that, but it actually brought me to, uh, w during that research, I stumbled across um, an article about the sound of World War One, and it and it and it references and it's based on a lot of firsthand reports, like written reports, because there were a lot of uh, German writers, poets that were sent to the front, like Remark himself, and they had very kind of detailed descriptions of the sound that they heard. Um, And uh, around the trying to describe the emotional impact that you know a twenty four hour bar uh, full barrage of mortar had on them, and uh, it was it has a it had a lot of onomatopoeia. Do you say that like the you know almost like in a comic book, kind of trying to mimic the the actual sound uh, of different grenades how they sounded and they gave them nicknames and stuff like that and. Uh, It was super interesting to learn about that as an inspiration source of inspiration because that led to the decision uh, to not even try and tackle this this uh, the soundtrack from a scientific point of view. You know, like the first probably the first intention would be let's find the exact sound sound of that French tank from that time or the exact whatever uh, uh, boot in that in that scene or the exact recording of that gun. Uh, but since the film is told from a, such a uh, uh, subjective perspective, we just uh, um, abandoned that idea pretty early on and thought about every sound like from an emotional point of view and tried to create something that would be emotionally meaningful rather than scientifically accurate, I would say, you know. So yeah, of course. Um, I don't think it's necessary to be a hundred percent period accurate all yeah. the time, and you guys just made something very um, emotionally relevant with that sound design. And I'm afraid that we are going to have to wrap it up in a minute, unfortunately. Um, but before we part, I just wanted to quickly say big congrats on the BAFTA win the other night and um, best of luck for the Oscars. Yeah, March 12th. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this ride has been such a blast for us and we're very kind of humbled and... Uh, Yeah, I, I will go go there with a very humble approach, already appreciating all the love and, and respect that the film has been uh, getting from, you know, all across the world. It's really overwhelmed by the, by the response. So whatever happens on the 12th, I mean, uh, is, you know, if, if it happens, Fantastic. If it doesn't happen, uh, we're still like super grateful for the for the resonance we've been getting. It's still fantastic. I mean, come on, uh, being a, <laughs> being nominated alongside Top Gun, Avatar, Elvis, and the Batman is like whoa. How much better yeah. can it be? So um, we're super grateful. Uh, how very exciting. Well, guys, best of luck. Um, 
And once again, thank you very much for making the time to have a little chat. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks. Thanks so much to Netflix for reaching out to organize this. And most of all, thank you, dear listener. Thank you. Have a great bloody day.